On a morning like today, I wanted to speak about the eternal perspective and trusting God's goodness in times of heartache. When I was an eager young teenager, I was about 19 years old, and I was really eager to, to follow God, um, to do amazing things. I was hoping to do amazing things for God hoping to turn the world upside down or right way up or it doesn't matter what but I had big had dreams and hopes burning in my heart that God would would use me in significant ways for his purposes that my life would bring him glory and um, in the church that I grew up in we had often had uh, different speakers come through and uh, I heard different stories of people who were making an impact for Jesus around the world. And one of the things I learned as I listened to them, and even as I had opportunity to meet some of them and talk with them, I found that they had one thing in common, the ones that most impacted me. These people who seemed to carry with them something of the real fragrance of Jesus, they weren't people who were saying the right things because it was the Christian thing to do or quoting Bible verses. They had this living reality born within them that when they spoke and when they prayed, you heard Jesus speaking and you heard the prayers from heaven. When I spoke with them and I got to know different ones and often had opportunity, sometimes just over a coffee afterwards or different, different contexts anyway, one of the things that I began to piece together was the reality that each of these people had experienced great storms in their life, sometimes immeasurable loss. But in the process of that, of clinging to Christ and holding on to Christ in the middle of all that, there was something that was formed in them that could not have been formed in any other way. Now, I didn't know that as a young 19-year-old. And I I, I remember saying to myself and to God, was a prayer I said, said, God, I want what they've got. I just don't want to go through that process that they've gone through of the pain and the suffering and the loss. God didn't actually answer me at that moment, but I think he, as I've lived a lot longer now, I think he said quietly, probably, and if I had ears to hear, I might have heard him say, Wayne, there's no other way. You are following a Messiah that suffered and was crucified before resurrected and ascended that's the way the way of the cross the way of suffering is the way of being formed like Christ amongst some of the people that I experienced this in were Julie's parents my in-laws I remember being very much impacted by her, her dad, who'd been invited by my then senior pastor to speak at a men's breakfast at our church. And I just started going out with Julie, just getting to know the family. And he told the story, and some of you have heard Julie interview her mum in New Life about the death of this infant son, Calvin, 
from an accidental medical overdose of medication for malaria, who's about one year old, one years old, died in Julie's mum's arm. This is while they were planting a church in a Malaysian village, a long way from family and friends and support. I've learned that it's quite easy for people to trust God, to trust in God's love and God's goodness when life is good. It's easy to do that. What I've, what I've learned is that strength comes from the choice to worship God and trust in God's goodness in times of heartache. That's what really forms Christ in us. And there are numerous examples in the Bible, and I wanted to share some of these with you this morning. And uh, you, you may want to look them up or you may want to listen. Lamentations chapter 3 verses 19 to 24 is the first one I want to go go to. So how many of you Lamentations is your favorite book of the Bible? You just love it. You just love a good lament. Well see Lamentations is a powerful book. It's Jeremiah's lament and he's sitting on the hill and if you know if you know the Is it the topography or the geography of Jerusalem? Which word is it? Topography or geography? Probably both. So Jeremiah is sitting on the hill, the Mount of Olives, looking over what is now the uh, desolate place of Jerusalem. The temple's been destroyed by the Babylonians as they've come through, conquering the land. Most of the people have been taken away as prisoners of war. He sits there in that desolation, looking across it. And in chapter 3 of his lamentations, his lament, he says, The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. You can only imagine it, can't you? Everything's decimated and devastated. Jeremiah says, I'll never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. And the May family will never forget this awful time as they grieve over their loss. And Jeremiah goes on and says, Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. In the midst of his pain and his grief and loss, he says this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. I say to myself, the Lord's my inheritance, therefore I will hope in him. If you're not familiar with Lamentations chapter 3 and these verses, I encourage you to mark them up in your Bible. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new Every morning, great is his faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness. I've put my trust in him. He is my inheritance and he is my hope. I will hope in him. My life is desolate at the moment, but I will hope in him. I've suffered unimaginable grief, but my hope is in him. I've suffered incredible loss, but my hope is in him. That is it. 
go on and we look at the story of Job, Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. Most of us are familiar with Job. It's a very painful book to read, especially when we, we look, look through the pain and the suffering that Job went through. In chapter 19, and verses 25 to 27, Job says this. In the middle of, again, he's pouring out in this conversation with his um, friends who are trying to help him in his crisis. And he says these, these words. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. I'll see him for myself. Yes, I'll see him with my own eyes. I'm overwhelmed at the thought. You need to remember this is thousands of years before Christ. This is thousands of years before the resurrection. And in the middle of his pain and suffering, he's seen something of the resurrection hope that you and I cling to because of Christ. And so he declares, I know my Redeemer lives. That'd be a great, great line to use in a song, wouldn't it? And he will stand upon the earth. You see, Jesus come back, stand on the earth. And and Job goes on, it's like, yep, and after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. Resurrection body, changed from in the twinkling of an eye, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Job says, yes, I'll see him for myself. I'll see him with my own eyes. And he said, I'm overwhelmed at the thought of that. In the middle of a catastrophe. Job is in a complete catastrophe situation. But he's yet, as he thinks about this reality, he says, I'm overwhelmed at the thought that my Redeemer lives and I'm going to see him. We've got another example in the life of David in 2 Samuel 12, verses 15 to 23. We see this incredible choice in the middle of pain and suffering of David to worship God. Now, is this a complex situation? And I don't have time to unpack it in all its entirety this morning. But this comes hot on the heels of a rebuke from the prophet Nathan to David, who is king. Nathan has rebuked him for his sin of murdering Uriah the Hittite to cover up his own adultery with Bathsheba. That's David's adultery with Bathsheba, who was Uriah's wife, who's now given birth to a son. And finally, David has confessed his sin to God and repented. And Nathan speaks to him in 2 Samuel and says to him, David, the Lord has forgiven you, but because you've shown utter contempt for the Lord by doing this, your child will die. And David goes home, and I pick up the text in verse 15. After Nathan returned to his home, and David had gone back to the the palace, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. Note the language the record uses. Uriah's wife. And look what David does, though. Pay attention here. This is very important. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and he lay all night on the bare ground. And the elders of his household 
pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, seven days, he's lying on the ground. He's refusing to get up. He's begging God for the life of this child. On the seventh day, the child died. And David's advisors were afraid to tell him. And they were speaking amongst themselves and they said, he wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill. What drastic thing will he do when we tell him the child is dead? You can imagine their predicament. And the text tells us that when David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. And he asked them, is the child dead? Yes, they replied, he is dead. Now watch what David does. Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, changed his clothes, and he went into the tabernacle and worshipped the Lord. He got up from the ground, shaved, showered, fresh clothes, deodorant, aftershave, the whole kit and caboodle, to go in to the presence of God to worship him. And after that, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. His advisors were trying to work out what the earth is going on. And they said, we don't understand you. (laughs) While the child was still living... You wept and refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you've stopped your mourning and eating again. And David said this to them. I fasted and wept while the child was alive. For I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back again? And then he speaks resurrection hope and he says, I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. Those of you who have known pain and suffering and loss know that the thing you want to cultivate is to be in his presence, being God's presence. And Aaron and Tony and the children and Janelle. You have blessed us with your presence this morning and you have blessed God with your presence this morning of coming into the place of worship and to seek him as you mourn in your grief and your loss. And this is the place to be. This is the place to be. It's to be in his presence. It's to lift our eyes up to him. It's to have an eternal perspective. This is not the end. One day, they'll be reunited. Moving away from the biblical text to one of my heroes, George Mueller was born in Prussia. Can't remember what year, but it was in the early 1800s, I believe. In 1835, he was married to his wife, Mary, and they began to establish Houses to care for orphans in the city of Bristol. I don't know if anyone's here from Bristol in the United Kingdom today. If you are, welcome. If you're not, that's okay. And eventually they were caring for more than 2,000 children. 
Many of you know the story of, of um, what Bristol was like at that time. How do you know that? Why can I say that? You know the story because you know the songs. There was a bloke called Charles Dickens who wrote a book called Oliver Twist. That's the story of the orphanages in Bristol. Well, it's not the orphanages, it's the orphans in Bristol and what people were doing with them. And into that space stepped George and Mary Mueller and said, these children have a destiny beyond thieving. It's to grow in the grace of God. And they began to take children in and to look after orphans. And eventually they were looking after 2,000 orphans in these various homes, trusting only in God to provide. One of the convictions that George Mueller had from a young age was that he would never ask people for money. He said, God, I will talk to you about my needs and I'll trust you to talk to people and for them to move. And for his entire life, there was provision. His entire life. He's one of my heroes because of that, along with Hudson Taylor is another one. So George and Mary, they had four children. It's probably not quite the right way to say it. No, it is the right way to say it. Four children, and two of those children were stillborn. Their daughter Lydia and a son Elijah were born alive. But Elijah died of pneumonia when he was very young. And when George Mueller's wife Mary died after they'd been married for 39 years, he preached her funeral sermon and he preached from the text of Psalm 119.68 using the King James Version which reads, Thou art good and doest good. My New Living Translation says, You are good and do only good. Mary being diagnosed with rheumatic fever. And this is how Mueller prayed in that time. He said, Yes, my father, the times of my darling wife are in thy hands. Thou wilt do the very best thing for her and for me, whether life or death. If it may be, raise up yet again my precious wife. Thou art able to do it, though she is so ill. But howsoever thou dealest with me, only help me to continue to be perfectly satisfied with your holy will. First time I read that, which was several years ago, it, it so impacted me. His Mueller's perspective was, God, you are good. You only give me what is good for me. And so I want my wife to live and to continue to live with me. But if that's not what's good for her and good for me, I will continue to trust in you because you are good and you only do good. 
It was the Lord's will to take her. And in that funeral service, Mueller said with great confidence in the sovereign mercy of God, I bow, I am satisfied with the will of my heavenly Father. I seek by perfect submission to his holy will to glorify him. I kiss continually the hand that has afflicted me. Without an effort, my inmost soul habitually joys in the joy that loved departed one. Her happiness gives joy to me. My dear daughter and I would not have her back were it possible to produce it by the turn of a hand. God himself has done it. We are satisfied with him. Those words are so powerful, aren't they, friends? Satisfied with God. Satisfied with him. God's sovereignty and God's mercy. John Piper said of God's sovereignty and God's mercy that these are the twin pillars of his life. He said, they are the hope of my future, the energy of my service, the center of my theology, the bond of my marriage, the best medicine in all my sickness, the remedy of all my discouragements. And when I come to die... Whether soon or late, these two truths, God's sovereignty and mercy, will stand by my bed with infinitely strong and infinitely tender hands. Lift me up to God. The sovereignty of God and the mercy of God. People, we can live with an eternal perspective. We can trust in God's goodness in times of heartache. As I look out across the room, I know that many of you have experienced God's goodness in times of heartache. Some of you are experiencing it right now. And some of you are young, and it will be your opportunity soon to experience that at some point in the future. We live from this eternal perspective of trusting in God's goodness. And running into the place of worship while we are in pain. We follow David to that place of worshipping him. As we've done today, we've gathered together. Because when we choose to worship God in the storm of our crisis, my experience, the witness of scripture and the testimonies that I've read to you are that we see his heart more deeply in the storm. In the storm of our crisis, we see his heart more deeply and appreciate the sufferings of Christ for our sins and the sins of the world. I want to transition into the Feast of Jesus now, so I invite you to get that little cup ready. Not quite at that point yet, but it's coming I want to read again some scriptures to you before you eat and drink. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 16. The writer tells us, So so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. 
Let's hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help it, help us when we need it most. This is one of those times we need it most. So we come boldly to the throne of our gracious God to receive his mercy and find grace. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 11 and 12. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Hebrews 10, 19 and 21. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. And Jesus himself said, I tell you the truth. This is John 5, 24 to 29. We read it just a couple of Sundays ago. I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they've already passed from death into life. And I assure you that the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now. When the dead will hear my voice. The voice of the Son of God and those who listen will live. The Father has life in himself and he has granted that same life-giving power to his Son. And he has given him authority to judge everyone because he is the Son of Man. Don't be so surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son and they will rise again. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life and those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. John six fifty three to 58. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise that person at the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. I live because of the living father who sent me in the same way. Anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, but will live forever. If that's your confession of Christ, I invite you to open up and to eat and drink these simple reminders of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and give thanks for the eternal life that you have in him. If you didn't receive one of these this morning as you came in, would you just put your hand up? The fit team have got some available at the back. Jesus, we worship you this morning and give you thanks for your body.
We share the same blood in, in the family of Christ. We have one Father and we share the same blood, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I invite you to drink and give thanks for the blood of Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for these great truths. For the reality that you, who knew suffering and pain and grief, you know us in our pain and suffering and grief. Father, Son and Spirit, we give you thanks for the price you paid to redeem us and all humanity and to reconcile us to yourself from our sin, our rebellion, our apathy and our indifference and to restore us as your image bearers to bear witness of you Blessed be your name, God. And may we be people who live always and every day with that eternal perspective. Great and glorious God. Great is your faithfulness, Lord.